Turn, if you will, in our reading of God's Word this morning to Jude, the letter of Jude, and we'll be looking at verses 5 through 7 this morning. It is Jude, verses 5 through 7. Hear with me the reading of God's Word. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Now we've all probably heard the phrase, out of sight, out of mind. Which is to say that if something is not right before our eyes, if it's something that we aren't thinking about or seeing right at this moment, We tend to forget about it or we push it to the back of our mind until it appears once again. Maybe at your job you have tons of work to do, but Friday rolls around and you end up going on a a week's vacation with your family. And so during that week off, you push that work that you have to to the side and you don't even think about it because you're enjoying that blissful state of relaxation that you're in with your family. Or perhaps you're that mother who's at home with her kids every day. And then you, you finally get that one night out with your lady friends or perhaps a dinner date with your husband. And although the dishes may be stacked up and clothes thrown about the floor, during that time you're not even thinking about it because you're having such fun when you're out. That's kind of what out of sight, out of mind means. But see, these are kind of lighthearted, positive examples that I'm giving here. But likewise, out of sight, out of mind also refers to spiritual things. And this is what Jude is addressing here in our text this morning. If you recall from the introduction of this book a couple weeks ago, we said that Jude is probably the most neglected book of the New Testament. And one of the reasons we gave for that is that Jude is dealing with judgment. And in the time and age that we live in today, where churches like to operate more like secular businesses, devising marketing strategies in order to amass numbers and gain popularity, judgment isn't something that's popular. Judgment tends to bring down the mood, dampen the atmosphere in a room full of people who have come to just sip on a cup of joe and feel good about themselves. You see, but what Jude does in these three verses is he reminds people that judgment is coming. It is real. And no matter how much you try to push it to the back of your mind or forget about it, you will experience it. That is for certain. In the way that Jude reminds people of the impending judgment that awaits all people is by giving them three real-life examples. For the reality is, when that guy who went on vacation comes home, or the wife who went out with her friends or her dinner date with her husband, when she returns home, what they are smacked with is real life once again. The work that they had that they left and forgot about went nowhere, stayed there, and when they came home, 
when they came back to their work, they had to deal with it once again. There was nowhere to run to, nowhere to escape. Now this world does not like to think about God's judgment. In fact, they like to make, make it something that's light-hearted or even rejected altogether. If you ever hear people discussing the judgment of God, they may say something like, well, as long as my good always my bad, He'll let me in. Or God is a God of love, and so there's no way that He's actually going to send people to hell. Or perhaps you've even heard, that's the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament wouldn't do that as if God somehow has changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And yet, although this is not how people behave in their own earthly lives, they want judgment. They want justice. For the the person who has their car stolen, what do they do? They run to the phone, they call the police, and they demand justice be executed upon the perpetrator. If someone murders someone close to them, you might hear them say they should rot in jail or burn in hell. They demand justice for those who commit such heinous acts. Yet, when it comes to God's justice, those same people demanding that justice be executed on others demand for themselves clemency. When God is the injured party, when He is the one wronged, He is just supposed to forget about it like it never happened. Pretend. It never happened. Yet God cannot do this, for in doing so, He would be acting contrary to Himself. He would be contradicting His own Word for ungodliness, for sinfulness, for transgressing God's law. He can do no other than punish. For that is who He is. The psalmist says in Psalm 9, verse 7 and 8, But the Lord sits enthroned forever, He hath established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. You see, His throne exists in order to execute justice. His justice is something that is inherently good and so it is necessary according to His righteousness that He punish for sin. In fact, it would be unrighteous of God to not punish for sin, to not execute justice on the lawbreaker. And so we know that through God's Word, He has told us that He does not change. And so the very God who punished the Israelites for unbelief, who punished the angels for leaving their proper dwelling place, who punished Sodom and Gomorrah for sexual immorality, is the same God today. That is why Jude can use these examples for the churches in whom he's writing to. He says they are for us. In verse 7 of Jude, he says they serve as an example. And so he says, to you who disobey, you false teachers in these churches, you who think you belong to God, yet live otherwise, just as God executed justice years ago, He likewise will execute judgment upon those lawbreakers and rebellious ones today. The punishment is the same, for God is the same. All who are not His children will suffer eternal condemnation. Not only a physical death, but a spiritual death leading to eternal fire. And so this morning what we want to do is look at our text under two headings. The first heading is the certainty of judgment. The certainty of judgment, where we will look at these three examples Jude gives of judgment upon the unbelievers. The second point of the morning that we will look at is the comfort of Christ. 
the comfort of Christ. What is it that believers have to look forward to as judgment approaches? What is our consolation in this present life? So we'll look at the certainty of judgment and the comfort of Christ. And so to begin then, looking with the certainty of judgment, look once again at verse 5. Jude says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. There are certain sins that most everyone will consider wrong. If you ask people, perhaps they won't call them sins anymore. Maybe they're errors or maybe they're mistakes. But everyone can agree that certain things seem to be immoral. Is murder wrong? Sure, people will say. Is is, uh, stealing wrong? Sure. Perhaps not today, but maybe in the past if we ask, is adultery wrong? Everyone would say, yes, adultery is wrong. They'd answer in the affirmative. But if you said, is it wrong to not believe in God? Is it wrong to not believe in God, to not trust in His Word? What do you think they would say? They might look at you awkwardly for a moment. Is it wrong to not believe in His Word? Uh, I don't think there's anything immoral about it, they might say. One can choose to believe in Him if they want to. You can choose not to believe in Him if you want to. It's no big deal. But foolishly, they deny the sin of unbelief. For unbelief is a sin by which all others spring forth. For it is unbelief that causes one to be able with ease to commit all those other sins. Adultery, murder, theft. They can do these things because they live unto themselves. They see themselves under no one else's authority but their own. They make themselves into God and serve their own sinful urges. Yet God has revealed to man the gravity of such a sin as unbelief. Because what unbelief does is it calls into question the very character of God. It calls into question His character. Unbelief unbelief denies Him the glory and honor due to Him. It calls into question His mercy, His power. But even more so, it calls into question His truthfulness. The sin of unbelief calls God a liar. John in his epistle says, Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Was it not the sin of unbelief that caused Adam and Eve to transgress God's command and to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? God spoke his word Yet Satan took this word and twisted it and distorted it and said, did God really say? But if Eve believed, she would have said, yes, God said, and she would have fled. Instead, in her unbelief, she questioned, well, did God really say this? If He said it, does He really mean it? Will He really follow through? Will we surely die? This is the same sin that the Israelites were guilty of as they are being brought to the promised land, the land which God promised upon condition of their obedience. And you may recall God commanded Moses to send out men to spy out the land. And so these men returned and spied out the land. And they returned with a bad report, being fearful after seeing the inhabitants of the land. And even though God said that He would protect them and so they were not to fear, they questioned God and cautioned against entering Canaan. And so in response, God says in Numbers 14.21, 
But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. You see, unbelief showed these people to not be a part of God's people. Yes, they were physically members of Israel, yet being a part of this nation did not afford them relief from the punishment of God, as unbelief in the promises of God give evidence to the fact that they, in fact, were reprobates, not partakers of the covenant of promise. And what does Jude say in verse 4 of these false teachers who have crept in unnoticed and perverted God's grace? He says that they long ago were designated for condemnation. That's reprobation as well. You see, a a choice we make for God, a, a choice we make for Christ, that's not good enough. Coming to church on Sunday, that's not good enough. One can look the part. They can even utter the words. But what will the Lord's response be to those evildoers on the last day? Many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do mighty works in Your name? And His response will be, I never knew You. Depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. See, they profess Christ with their mouth, but their words gave evidence to the... Their actions gave evidence to the fact that they were never truly His. This is why Jude says, calling the saints to continue in the faith later in verses 20 and 21, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. As they wait upon the return of Christ, as we wait upon the return of Christ, We are to be active in heavenly things. Active in prayer and in reading God's Word and helping neighbor. See, but these false teachers use this as an opportunity, as an invitation to use their bodies in whatever manner they chose, in sexual sin. They treated grace as an invitation to satisfy their own sinful desires. You see, but this is the difference between a true Christian and a false Christian. These warning passages have an effect on the true Christian. For God uses these warning passages as a way to preserve His people. He uses these as a way to preserve His people. And so, when we come upon these warning passages in Scripture, we aren't to just to gloss over them and say, well, that's for the sinner, that's for the unbeliever, that's, for, that's not for me. No, these warning passages are for you as well. And they should serve to stir you up to continue on in the faith. To grow in godliness. To remind yourself of the gospel each day and God's mercy for you. But for those who are parading around as Christians and are not, these warnings are not heeded. And they continue to disobey God. And all this does is continue to heap judgment upon them more and more until the coming of Christ. As the Israelites... They were granted mercies. They had the oracles of God, yet they still disobeyed God, exercising unbelief. Those who Jude writes to in this epistle, they were surrounded by the people of God. They participated in the sacraments, yet they rebelled against God. We as parents, as grandparents, we tell our kids, don't do this or don't do that. Don't lie, cheat, and steal. 
We instruct them. We tell them to obey. And so when they disobey, the punishment they receive is harsher. Because they weren't ignorant of the fact that they weren't supposed to do these things. They were instructed, and yet they still obeyed. Disobeyed. This will be similar for those on the day of judgment who continue to rebel against God, even though they have been around God's Word and around God's people. For they had all the advantage and yet still exercised unbelief and rebellion. For great will be their penalty on the last day. Yet now Jude moves next to his example of the angels in describing to these churches the certainty of judgment. And you may ask, well, why does he use this uh, example of the angels? Like, I can understand that he uses the example of the Israelites in the wilderness. I can understand the example he uses of Sodom and Gomorrah. But why the angels? Well, here Jude is using an argument from the greater to the lesser. As Jude says in verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own proper position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. See, Jude's example is given to us to demonstrate that if these holy angels who are in the presence of God, who we are made a little lower than, were not spared from God's wrath because of sin, neither will we be spared from God's wrath for our sin. If they are to be judged, think about how much we likewise will be judged. Now there are some questions as to who these angels were and and what the angels' uh, sin was. Some say that the the sin of the angels was that they came down from heaven and they took upon themselves uh, women from upon the earth. And Genesis 6 would be used as a passage to to buffer that argument. Uh, Today is not my intention to get into that debate or discussion other than to say that that is not the opinion that I take. Um, I don't believe Genesis 6 or Jude 6 here have anything to do with angels taking for themselves young ladies. And Jude certainly does not say that that was their sin here, and so neither will we. But what Jude does describe as the angel's sin was that they left their position of authority they were given. They left their proper dwelling. They left their home. They didn't stay within their, dom- within their domain. Perhaps this was because they, decided, they desired something better. They thought they were more deserving of, of, of some domain greater than where they, God had placed them. Perhaps they wanted the place of God. And so it's obvious that rebellion and disobedience was a part of their sin, for they did not stay in the domain which God had placed them. And so from that we are told that they were cast down out of heaven, out of their condition of holiness, and are now being kept in chains in utter gloomy darkness. Now you see what the rebellion of the angels, what it did though, is that it made way for our own rebellion. For it was the serpent, a fallen angel who tempted Eve. It was the fallen angel who sought to turn man away from God and he was successful in his endeavor. And so now they are no longer in the presence of the Lord. Which is why Jude can use this imagery of chains and darkness to describe their current condition. They are no longer in happiness, but now in misery. They are temporarily judged for the moment. But they know that they can never reclaim their original position of happiness and holiness. And so they are in a state of misery. 
as they wait for the return of Christ, for they will receive their judgment of eternal fire. And so this example should teach us that misery awaits all those who rebel against God, no matter how high one's position or authority. You see, these angels thought well of themselves. They thought highly of themselves. They were teachers in the church, yet they used their authority as a means to sin against God. Rather, let this serve as Christians an example of how glorious it is to be in the presence of our Lord. It should motivate us to continue on in sanctification, to grow in godliness, preparing ourselves, equipping ourselves, readying ourselves for when Christ returns. It should likewise teach us to think of ourselves more humbly. It should teach us to be content in the place where God has fitted us. Yet ultimately, this verse again is to demonstrate to us the destruction that awaits both man and woman alike. For if God did not spare the angels, He will not spare us. Now the last example that Jude gives comes from a well-known text in Genesis 19, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verse 7 it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, unlike the verse which preceded this one, Jude here tells us exactly what their sin was. It's common today to hear many different interpretations, though, of what the sin of the Sodomites were. And usually it's not homosexuality, but there is no escaping the words of God's servant Jude. Remember in Genesis 19, you have these two angels who come. And Lot invites them into their home and their home is quickly surrounded and men are banging on the door and it says in verse 5 of Genesis 19, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them. This is the same word that Moses used to describe the conception of Cain in Genesis 4. He says, Adam knew Eve and they bore a son, Cain. You see, but what this revisionist interpretation of Genesis 19 says is that their sin was lack of hospitality or or pride, but nothing to do with homosexual sin. Now certainly there were more than one uh, sins present at this moment, obviously, yet not to the exclusion of sexual sin. Jude is clear in his condemnation of homosexuality. The Sodomites, he said, went went after unnatural desires. And so there is not a gray area. And as Christians, we cannot be afraid to call sin what it is. And that is sin. And that is all sin. Not just homosexual sin, but heterosexual sin. Man and woman uh, sleeping together prior to marriage. For all sexual sin was prevalent in these churches to whom Jude writes. Which is why he says that these false teachers who crept in unnoticed perverted the grace of God, turning it into sensuality or licentiousness. They thought that they could use their bodies in whatever manner they chose because they were perceived to be under grace. And so Jude writes to give us this example of the Sodomites to show that sexual sin as well as all sin will not go unpunished. For God has freed us from sin, not to sin. This was the perversion of these false teachers. And so what ended up happening to Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, Jude says that they suffered 
eternal fire. How do they suffer eternal fire? Well, Moses records that God rained down fire and sulfur from the heavens. And, it, and Moses records Abraham that he looked down upon the land and seen smoke coming up from the land like smoke from a furnace. This picture Jude gives us gives us a glimpse of what punishment will be at the last judgment. For Sodom and Gomorrah were no more. Completely and totally destroyed, never to be rebuilt once again. This was a display of God's righteous judgment. A display, a reminder of the everlasting consequences for sin. For when Christ returns once again, just as Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped off the face of the earth, the ungodly likewise will be wiped from the face of the earth, cast down to eternal hellfire, never to have opportunity for redemption again. There is no coming back from that. And so you ask, well, how do we escape judgment? Well, this brings us then to our second point of the morning, which is our comfort of Christ. You see, the example that Jude gives to us of God's justice and judgment upon the wicked also shows us God's mercy upon the righteous. For not all those who sinned in the wilderness were killed. Not all the angels who left their proper domain uh, were cast down. And not all those in Sodom and Gomorrah were killed. You see, there is redemption through judgment. Remember in verse 1, Jude says that believers, believers are those who are being kept for Christ. And this has been so since the fall. God preserves those who are His in Christ for Christ. This is our comfort in this present life. In the example given of the Israelites, not all the Israelites were destroyed. If you remember, Caleb and Joshua were not. Caleb was one of the spies who witnessed the difficulty that it would be in entering the land of Canaan. Yet he argued with the other spies who wanted to uh, turn back and not go to Canaan. He argued with them in front of Moses saying, let us go up and occupy it for we are able to overcome it. He believed in the promises of God. And when the people, upon hearing this bad report, cried out in deliverance, saying, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes and said to the people, the land which we passed through to spy out, it is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us as a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. You see, although judgment fell upon those who rebelled, redemption was there for those who believed. This is the comfort that we have. There is eternal life that awaits the believer, not eternal death. Just as God brought them through the promised land, He likewise today is bringing us unto the heavenly city, which that promised land only pictured. The same was true in Jude's example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Although destroyed for wickedness, the land and all who were in it, Lot was rescued. If you have time, you should look at Second Peter, where Second Peter describes this. But for the sake of time, I will just tell you, Peter says that uh, God saved a righteous lot. 
God saved righteous Lot. He described Lot as being one who was distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, having his righteous soul tormented as he was in uh, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. What a comfort that should be to us in this present life. For sin seems to abound more and more around us. And it can be discouraging for the Christian. For it's allowed to be taught in schools. It's paraded around in the streets. It's even made law now. Yet we know that God makes a distinction between the godly and the ungodly. A distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. For in that day of judgment, there will be those who are sent to eternal hell, yet those who believe will be sent to eternal life. For the, for the children, I know that you all like uh, superheroes. And so usually all superhero movies go, go about the same way. You have these evil people who come in and try to take over the inhabitants of this land. And then at the end you have the, the good superhero comes in and saves the day. He rescues the people. Well, that's fiction. That's not real. What Jude here is describing is reality. God is the great rescuer of mankind. He delivers us from sin, death, and the devil. And so we are not to conform to the practices of this world, for the world opposes God. No, we are to live lives that are pure and undefiled as we wait upon the Lord's return. You see in these examples, we are shown not only God's justice, but we are shown God's mercy. But I ask, where is God's justice and mercy shown together the most? What is the pinnacle, the climax where justice and mercy meet. It is on the cross. It is in the cross that the justice of God is shown as He is punishing Christ for our sins. Yet in punishing Christ for our sins, He likewise is making a way of redemption for those who would believe through His Son, Jesus Christ. We have justice and we have mercy at His culmination. See, we cannot believe on our own. We cannot stir up enough godliness within ourselves to live upon this earth in a righteous manner. Yet that righteousness which God uh, requires of His people, He likewise provides for us. That righteousness, that holiness, He gives to those whom He has called with a heavenly calling. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 3 so we can look together at the righteousness of God and what Paul has to say about it. Chapter 3, look at verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Here Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteous of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over our former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. What more comforting to the Christian than that? For we have sinned like the Israelites. We have sinned like the fallen angels. We have sinned like those in Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't think of yourselves any differently. Yet we did not receive what it is that we deserved. And friends, that is what we call mercy. That is the mercy of God. God could have destroyed us at any moment for our rebellion. Yet instead, He justified us by His grace and that itself was a gift. And in doing so, He demonstrated Himself to be not only the just, but the justifier. For our sin could not go unpunished. Yet He executed that justice upon His own Son so that He, must, so that he might justify a people unto Himself. That He might declare us not guilty in the court of law for the merits and the work of Christ. No longer seeing in us our guilt and our shame, but rather seeing the righteousness of Christ. You see, we as a society, we as humanity in general, don't like to think of ourselves as evil. Evil is those other guys. Those murderers and those rapists. Those are the evil ones. Those are the ones who should be brought to justice, not us. But Paul says all have sinned. All have done evil in the sight of God. Let these three examples that we have been given by Jude highlight to us, remind us our former lives of rebellion, the punishment that was to be ours. Yet it should rouse us to continually seek after heavenly things, to be heavenly minded people. Let these three examples serve to show you the mercy of God that we dwell upon this each day and what God has done mercifully in our lives. How God has transformed us, given us His Spirit, united us to Christ, and has done so for a purpose. He has done so for a purpose. No longer to walk in sin, to live like the hypocrites, but using our members for God's spiritual kingdom. To declare the goodness of God to the nations to testify to God's goodness in our lives, to demonstrate God's goodness in our walk. For judgment is coming. This is a certainty. Judgment for all people alike. But I ask, will that judgment be a terror for you? Is it something that you dread? Is it something that is fearful? For the believer, it should not be. It should be a comfort. For we are being kept for Christ and so that judgment should be a great joy and delight for us. For redemption will finally, ultimately, be accomplished. And so if someone asks you, Christian, what is, what is the comfort to you that Christ is going to come and He's going to judge the living and the dead? We can respond with the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism and say this, that in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same one who before offered himself for me to the judgment of God and removed the curse from me to come as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation but shall take me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Please bow your heads and pray with me. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word.
Father, that You have given to us even warnings, warnings to Your people that You may use these warnings to preserve us, Father, that we may heed these warnings, that we may continue on in the faith through the strength of Your Spirit. Father, we pray that You would come soon, Lord, that in this godless land, You would pull us out of it, that there would be redemption through judgment. Father, that like Lot, like Caleb, like Joshua, You would continue to work in, work in us, Father, that faith, that faith that You granted unto us, that we would persevere to the end. Father, we ask, Lord, that what it is we have heard from Your Word this morning, You would apply to both mind and heart, that we would not leave from this place and forget it, but rather, Lord, that we would use what it is that we learn to grow in godliness, to grow in sanctification, to grow in our, our, our living so that we, Lord, might bring glory and honor to You, not be like the hypocrites, not be like these false teachers, but rather be like Jew, the servant of the Lord. And so, Father, we pray all these things in Your Son's name. Amen.